Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I used to be a park ranger, and even I don't believe the horror I found. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you in the woods so i'm posting this as a warning there are things out there that you don't want to know about stay away from them don't go looking for them i'll tell you my story in hopes that it will quench your curiosity it was a night like any other night at least lately i had barely arrived at the ranger station and there were already four calls of vacationers homes getting broken into out here in the West, Virginia wildlife preserve people tend to think that just because they plant some houses that the animals should somehow know and respect boundaries. 
that's kind of tough when the animals are on a huge plot of land where they've never been hunted and never even been threatened by anything other than a bigger animal. Folks seem to think this is a great vacation spot for them. What they don't realize is it's also a great vacation spot for the animals. I hopped in the company truck and started toward my first destination of the night. An elderly couple had been terrorized by a deer that literally broke in through a sliding glass door. They managed to trap it in a side room and needed someone to go release it. I got elected. When I got there, the vacationers looked like the ones caught in headlights. They were still wide-eyed. I could tell they were in shock. I had them go into another room and close the door. Once they were out of the way, I found the closest door to the outside and opened it. Then I went to the room with a deer in it. I slowly opened the door and was shocked to find the room covered in blood. The deer was laying on the floor panting. I approached it, slowly circling around to leave the doorway open, hoping to give it an escape route. The closer I got, the more I realized this deer wasn't going anywhere. Its side was covered with claw marks. At first, I thought a coyote had attacked it, but the marks were too far apart. They were large enough to be caused by a bear, but the individual claws were too far apart. I'd never seen anything like this. If I had to compare it to something, I'd say Freddy Krueger sliced it up. The deer's eyes went wide when I approached it, but it didn't jump up and run. I took this as a bad sign. Its breath came in ragged gasps as I struggled to roll it over. Once I did, I was my turn to struggle breathing. Its entire side was torn to shreds, but that wasn't the worst part. There were large chunks that were missing. I examined the wounds and found bite marks where the missing flesh should have been. But the bites were massive. If it wouldn't have challenged the laws of nature as well as my own sanity, I would have said it was bitten by a shark. Blood poured out of the side and the deer struggled to draw breath. I stood and left the room, leaving the poor creature the dignity of a private death. When I went back in, it was still. I took pictures with my cell phone and tried my best to carry the creature out without making more of a mess. After I got it loaded on the back of my truck, I went back inside and talked to the vacationers. When I opened the door to the room they were in, the woman's eyes grew wide and she started screaming. The man's eyes were the size of saucers as well. I approached them slowly with my arms outstretched to try to calm them down. It seemed to have the opposite effect. They started climbing the furniture and clawing at the walls to get away from me. I decided to back away and give them some room. What's wrong? I said. The man pointed a shaky finger at me. Yo, you, you, you're covered in blood, he said. The deer got you, the woman said. You've got rabies or worse, the man said, keeping his distance. I'm sorry, folks, I said. This is the deer's blood. You killed it just for breaking in, the woman said. What? No, it was already injured. I just took it to my truck. The couple seemed to settle down and consider this. So you don't have rabies, the man said slowly, looking me up and down. Or anything else, the woman said, hiding behind her husband. No, ma'am, I'm fine. She took her turn eyeing me up and down. I assumed looking for wounds. Being satisfied, they asked the one question I didn't want to answer. So what killed the deer, the man said. I really don't know, I said truthfully. Having just gotten them calmed down, I didn't want to send them back into a panic. It was probably just a coyote, I said. 
A coyote, the man said, diving back into the pool of panic. Or a bear, I said, trying and failing to calm them. A bear, the woman said, diving in after her husband. You know, folks, you've had a traumatic night, I said. I can't tell you what to do, but if I were you, I'd... Uh, we're leaving, the woman said, dragging her husband out of the room. That sounds like a good idea, I said. And then, like an idiot, I added, I hope you enjoyed your stay. They either didn't hear me or ignored me. Either way, it wasn't long until I heard a car start, then roar away from the house. I went back into the room where the deer had been trapped and started working backwards from there, trying to find out what had happened. It wasn't hard to pick up the trail. It had been bleeding badly. Seeing the bites and claw marks made that fairly obvious. I tracked back through the kitchen and out the smashed glass door. Once outside, I turned on my flashlight. The trail was a little harder to follow, but not much. I could still see drops of blood beside its tracks as I followed them back toward the pond behind the house. I approached the pond and saw signs of a struggle. This must have been where the deer was attacked. There were other tracks in with the deer's but that he didn't make sense to me. They were large, too large. Their shape was odd as well. If I had to call them anything, I would call them duck prints. But massive. Larger than any duck by many times. A giant duck with shark teeth. I think I'll leave that out of my report, I thought. It suddenly struck me what the tracks were. It was a man with swim fins on his feet. But why? Why go to all that trouble to poach a deer when you can just knock it out with a tranquilizer gun? My mind sent me an answer, but I didn't like it. What if the man is a psychopath? Just getting his kicks by killing an animal with his bare hands. I thought about the mental hospital in the neighboring county and wondered if one of their patients had taken an unsanctioned leave of absence and they were trying to keep it quiet. I didn't like that thought one bit. Aside from the fact that it didn't explain the huge bites on the deer, it also meant we had someone who might suddenly get a taste for killing. Doing this to animals was horrible. But what if he decided to go after something bigger? I shot a look at the house wondering how many vacationers were within a short walk from this spot and how many were armed. As I contemplated the safety of the people in the area, I heard something behind me. I whipped around and shone my light, but saw nothing. I scanned the pond and saw a ripple emanating from the middle. Probably just a fish jumping. I took some more pictures of the struggle area with my phone and started back toward my truck. I had more calls to answer and this riddle would have to wait. I drove halfway around the lake, around three miles to the other vacation home where a break, and it had been reported. When a woman in her thirties answered the door, she took a step back. Oh my, she said looking at the dried blood all over my uniform. Good evening, ma'am. Sorry about my appearance, I said. Did you report a break-in? Yes, we did. Please come in, she said in a friendly tone, yet gave me a wide berth while closing the door. She led me upstairs to the kitchen. For some reason, I was expecting to find blood all over, like with the last house. However, this was a completely different mess. She showed me the door. It had been forced open, but not shattered like the last one. There was only a small amount of glass broken. Then the door latch had been unlocked and the door slid open. 
There were faint images of my giant duck tracks like the last house. My spine turned to ice. This house was over three miles away from the other. There were many more people in that space that might fall in victim to this crazed person. The woman showed me the rest of the kitchen, the mess that had been left. There were a few cans of sardines that had been opened and eaten, and also some cans of tuna fish. The strange thing was how they were opened. The cans had been torn into with something sharp, but not a can opener. The marks looked like they were torn open with claws. I shuddered to imagine the amount of strength it took to do something like that, and then I spotted it. Beside one of the cans of tuna was a small puddle of blood. Ma'am, could I trouble you for a sandwich bag? I said, she handed me one, and I carefully tried to scrape as much blood into it as possible. I sealed it and put it in my pocket, then went out through the broken door. Behind the house, just like with most of these vacation houses, there was a pond. I traced the tracks back to it, and they disappeared at the waterline. I shone my light over the water, but the only thing I saw was a stray turtle. I stared at it for a long time, as though it would somehow give me a clue as to what was going on. What should we do? The woman said, nearly scaring me half to death. I hadn't heard her follow me out the door and into the yard. I'll send someone around to look at that door in the morning, I said. In the meantime, it might not be a bad idea to sleep in a room that has a lock on the door. I'm sure they won't be back, but just in case. She didn't seem very comforted by that idea, but thanked me as I left. The next two reports were just teenagers breaking in and stealing beer. That was it. No bloody wildlife, no weird tracks, just kids being kids. I went back to the station, changed out of my bloody uniform, and spent the rest of the night filling out reports on what had happened. When my shift was over and I passed on what had happened, I took a little trip to the neighboring county. I stopped in at the mental hospital and asked if they had any escapes lately. The nurse looked at me like I had asked her if she was wearing deodorant. We don't have escapes, she said with obvious pride that showed his arrogance. I thanked her and left, feeling less than satisfied with her answer. Next, I stopped in at the local police department and asked one of my friends on the forest if they could analyze the blood sample for me. I shared my thoughts that there might be an escapee from the mental hospital and the blood sample might help us find out who and track him down. It was well past noon until I got to bed. That night when I got to work it was pandemonium. There had been more break-ins and people were starting to panic. The owner of the resort was frantic. People were canceling left and right and wanting their money back. When I walked in he stormed he pudgy face right up into mine. You told people to go home, he fumed, glaring up at me. I merely suggested. Do you want to pay their rental out of your salary? I work for the state, not you, I said. He turned a deeper shade of red. Would you rather see people in body bags instead of animals, I said. That wouldn't do much for business now, would it? He turned fire engine red and stormed out mumbling. We'll see. I investigated five break inside night. Only two of them were legit. The rest seemed like half-hearted attempts to stage a break, and so they could get out of paying for their rental. The two real ones shared the same characteristics as before, just enough of a broken window to open the door, the cans of whatever seafood was available. 
They even got shrimp out of the freezer. Everything about the way the intruder acted pointed to a person. All I needed to know was who. Again, I followed the tracks back to the nearby pond. I stood for a long time studying the surface of the water. I knew these ponds were all designed the same. A roughly 40-yard by 40-yard body of water around 5 feet deep in the middle, stocked with mostly bluegill for catch and release fishing. Anyone using these ponds to hide would have to be holding their breath for inhuman periods of time. I stared at the surface for 20 minutes. If someone was out there, they had an invisible snorkel or an extra set of lungs. After my rounds of investigating and reporting, I decided to stick around and do a little extra investigating. I ran home, grabbed my swim trunks, mask, and snorkel, and went to the site of the most recent break. In, I waded out into the water, unsure of what I would find when a snake slithered past me. I let it go and waded deep enough to where I could swim. I hovered at the level of the surface, dipping my mask underwater to get a glimpse of whatever there was to see. There wasn't much. Fish, underwater plants, and lots of water. Just what you would expect from a pond. As I kept going towards the middle, the water was getting deeper. I now couldn't touch the bottom. I had to float on the surface. Looming in front of me was a dark spot on the bottom of the pond. I took it for a rock, but swam close enough to investigate anyway. In for a penny and for a pound. As I drew close enough to hover over it, I realized it wasn't a rock. I took a deep breath and dove to find out what it was. The further I swam down, the further I was able to swim down. I kept going and going. Light disappeared. I was sure I had been swimming straight down for a solid minute without touching the bottom. I turned and looked up. The surface of the pond was only a pinprick of light. My lungs screamed at me to turn around. I had no choice but to comply. I clawed at the water in desperation. It seemed like I was swimming in mud or something was pulling me down. Almost like a force or current pushing against me, wanting me to drown before I could fully explore this hidden secret. After what felt like an eternity, I broke the surface of the water and gasped for air. I swam over to the shallows and walked out of the pond. I collapsed on the shore and lay there for a long time trying to regain my breath. As my brain received oxygen, I thought about what had happened and if it had been real, an illusion, or if I had just gotten turned around somehow and stuck at the bottom. I had to find out. I wasted no time driving two counties over and renting some dive equipment along with a light. So armed, I returned to the pond and walked toward the middle again. This time, when I dove toward the dark spot, I was able to see exactly what it was. I used the flashlight to examine the darkness. As I swam deeper, the sides closed in on me as if I was swimming down the gullet of some massive fish. I've never been claustrophobic before, but that was rapidly changing. I barely had any room to maneuver as the sides closed in. I contemplated turning around, but there was no room. I could feel myself start to panic. I had to focus to keep my breaths regular. I was very close to a panic attack when suddenly the tunnel opened up again. The sides grew further apart. I checked my watch and I had been under for 15 minutes. The sides of the tunnel had spread out so far they were barely visible and I could see a light ahead of me. I swam toward it, desperate to get out of this water. I broke through the surface and looked around. 
I was in the pond. Somehow I had gotten turned around and was back in the pond. I swam to the side until I could stand and walked out to the shore. Looking around, I made a startling discovery. I was in a pond, the same one as the break in last night. Somehow there was a hidden tunnel between the two ponds. That's how the robber never gets caught. He just swims to the next pond slick as snot. No fuss, no muss. I now knew the how, but I needed to know more. As tempting as it was to swim back through the tunnel, I was still a little shaken and didn't want to risk an underwater panic attack. I walked back to my truck, took off my dive equipment, and drove back to the dive shop. I asked about frequent customers, especially for refilling tanks. They told me they had a few regulars that came in every weekend, but no one knew, and no one who needed refilled more than once a week. I asked if there were any other dive shops in the area, and they told me the next closest one was over a hundred miles away. I went home frustrated. It wasn't making sense. He would need air to swim back and forth through that tunnel, and that was his escape route. I was sure of it. I tried to sleep through the afternoon, but my mind wouldn't let me rest. It was working on the impossible puzzle of how the robber was getting air. I borrowed a couple trail cams and set one up at each pond. I needed to see if he had some new tank system or what. I also wanted to identify him and shut him down fast. I made sure to stay away from those ponds that night so he would feel free to do his thing. In the morning, I gathered the cameras and took them home. I downloaded both memory cards before watching the video. Just as the second download was finished, my phone rang. Hello? I said, Hey John, it's Steve. I got the results from that blood you gave me the other day. Great, I said, hitting the play button on my computer. Were you able to get a match on any hospital records? Not exactly. Why not? I asked as a ghostly green image appeared on my computer. The image was blurred, but it was definitely the size of a man walking upright toward the camera. I clicked to the next lad and froze at what I saw. Well, the thing is, the blood you gave me came back as reptile DNA. I registered the words he said in my mind, just like I registered the image on my computer screen, but I just couldn't place them in reality. Are you there? He said into the phone. Yes, I'm sorry, I said. Could you send a copy of your findings to my office? Sure, no problem. Thanks, I appreciate it. You really helped me figure this out. And time, he said cheerfully before hanging up. I hadn't taken my eyes off the computer screen the whole time. No matter how long I stared at it, I couldn't make my mind acknowledge it as real. Standing there, large as life, was not a man in a wetsuit. It was a creature. I could see the wide mouth full of sharp teeth that looked exactly like the bites on the deer. I could see the webbed feet that looked like swim fins, only they had claws sticking out of the front where toes would be. I saw the razor-sharp claws on its webbed hands. It was a full-on nightmare staring me in the face. I sat back and thought for a long time. Then I printed copies of the images and put them in an envelope. I rushed to the station to share the information I had with my fellow rangers. As I was showing them, their faces ranged in emotions from shock to disbelief to outright mocking. As I was going through my investigation, the owner of the timeshares walked in. What are we all looking at? He said, eyeing me with contempt. 
It seems like John has solved the case of the break-ins, one of the other rangers said. The owner approached. He picked up the lab report and read it, then stared for a long time at the picture. Do you know what this is? He said absently. I really don't know yet, I said. I've never seen anything like it. He turned to me and smiled. This is money, he said, holding up the picture. What do you mean? I said. Those idiots that go around hunting, what do they call them? Cryptids? Yeah, cryptids. They'll pay through the nose if they think they can find something like this. And then there's the TV shows and merchandising, he said. You may have saved my financial hide. He beamed at me. I don't think you understand, I said. This is a dangerous animal. If you had seen what it did to that deer, so what do you want to do? Hunt it down and kill it. Maybe not kill it, but definitely tranquilize it and take it to a secure location where it can't hurt anyone. You dumb son of a bitch, he yelled. I could make a mint. I wouldn't even have to repair those houses. They would all rush in to investigate and leave piles of cash in my bank account. But what about the people? Who cares about the people, he said. Throw them all out. I've got the chance of a lifetime beating down my front door. And you want to flush it down the toilet because you're scared someone might break a nail. He was breathing hard and staring up into my face. The air was charged with fury, his and mine. And then a sudden calm came over him. Charles, he said, addressing the lead ranger. Isn't this a wildlife preserve? Yes, it is, Charles said warily. And aren't the wildlife on this preserve protected from all tampering by law? Well, I guess so, Charles said. What if those animals present a threat? I said to Charles. How many deer were killed by coyotes on this preserve last year? The owner said. Dozens, Charles said. Were the coyotes removed from the preserve? No, Charles said. The owner turned and shot me a triumphant look. John, Charles said, I know you have everyone's best interests in mind, but you're gonna have to let this go. I glared at him. And what happens when this thing decides it likes to eat humans? All the eyes in the room that had been on me suddenly found somewhere else to look. All but the owner. He was smiling from ear to ear. I think the pudgy little bastard was about to break into the happy dance. I searched the room for any support, but found none. I pulled my badge off my shirt, quietly laid it on the desk, and left. If that was the end of my story, I would say I had failed. I took my pension and rented one of the houses on the preserve. The owner had leaked through social media that a cryptid had been spotted on the preserve. As he had guessed, the cryptid hunters and TV crews came in droves, renting everything in sight. My goal was different. I already knew it existed. I knew how it got around without being detected. I stayed at one of the break in houses. Every night I took a huge tuna I had bought fresh that morning and laid it out beside the pond. I sat in the dark living room and watched the first night as it approached the fish with more caution than curiosity. After sniffing it for a long time, it grabbed it and dove for the pond. Each night after, I laid out a fish and the creature became less cautious. It was being fed and the media frenzy was starving. The hunters had found nothing. There were no sightings as long as I fed it. Everyone had their cameras set up. The few that roamed around left me alone when they saw someone in the house. 
I guess they thought I was another cryptid hunter and respected my privacy. As the number of sightings stayed at zero, they started turning on the owner, calling him a fraud. His reputation plummeted. After a week with no sightings, people started leaving. In desperation, he did the wrong thing. He hired an actor to dress in a creature suit and roam around. Of course, the hunters and shows saw right through this and destroyed what was left of his reputation. I had rented the house for two weeks. Between the rent and the fish, my money was running out. I had kept the people safe. But what would happen when I stopped feeding it? I had managed to clear out most of the people so they would be safe. But what about my fellow rangers? What would happen when it became desperate? when the starving creature no longer had houses full of food to break into. I had three more nights until I had to leave. I was out of money. The preserve had become a ghost town. As far as I knew, I was the only renter left. It was decision time. I sat staring at the large tuna on the table with a bottle of bleach next to it. Let it live and see what happens or kill it. I thought about this for a long time. Both options had merits and consequences. I chose a third option, a much more dangerous one. I took the fish out and laid it where I usually did, then backed up a few feet and stood there. Over an hour passed before the water stirred. I saw the head and eyes of the creature appear as it headed toward the fish. And then it stopped. It had seen me. I made sure to keep still with my arms at my side. It slowly approached and stood. It was a few feet away with the fish in between us. It studied me and sniffed the air, then became agitated. Perhaps it had smelled my scent before as a pursuer. It let out a soft hiss, but bent down and took the fish, keeping its eyes on me the entire time. Then once it had its meal, it did the most incredible physical display I've ever seen. It leaped 20 feet in the air and landed in a perfect dive right in the middle of the pond leaving almost no splash. I let out a breath I didn't realize I'd been holding and collapsed to the ground, shaking. Once I had recovered, I went back inside and fell into a fitful sleep. That was only part of my plan. The next night would decide who lived and who died. I did exactly like the night before, minus the fish. The creature approached, stepped up to me and looked around for the fish. I showed it my empty hands. It sniffed at them and growled, having smelled the scent of fish. It looked at my hands, and I wondered if it was going to bite them off as a substitute. It hissed at me and sniffed my face. I saw it flexing its claws the whole time. I stared into its face, those massive razor-sharp teeth, and swallowed hard. I did all I could to stay still, to show it I wasn't a threat. My heart hammered in my chest. It opened its jaws and showed me those horrible teeth. Its breath was a horrid stench I had never smelled and hoped to never again. I closed my eyes, not knowing if they would ever open. Seconds fell into minutes, I opened my eyes, and I was alone. There wasn't even a ripple in the water. I sighed. My decision had been made. It had shown restraint, and I would too. I went back inside, packed and left. I could only hope and pray that the people that remained, including my former co-workers, would be safe. I went home and slept restlessly. In the morning, there was a report in the newspaper on a break in the wildlife preserve. They said the only thing that was taken were cans of tuna fish. 
I smiled ruefully and wondered how long it would stay that way. If you're reading this, don't go looking for this thing. If you see it, don't tell others about it. Just leave it alone and hope for the best. It was one of those late nights on the job, but that didn't bother me at all. In fact, it was one of my favorite parts of being a park ranger. Hanging around late at night with just a few of my fellow rangers in the middle of the woods, it was just like huddling around a campfire while you told stories. Except we were indoors around a fireplace. It was the middle of spring, but it had been cold lately, so while the afternoons were pleasant, the nights had been chilly, which was why we were all inside gathered around a fire while on the clock. The ranger station was beyond comfortable with a fire, so I was contently sitting in one of the many leather couches facing it. We were all midway through a shift, and like many nights on the job, it was quiet, so we got to talking about nothing in particular. There's nothing like the natural flow of an unplanned conversation. Outside, the evening had slowly given way to night, and the darkness had settled upon the woods with its usual silent thoroughness. The area may be a park during the day, but at night it was the woods. Parks inherently sound fun and brings to mind cookouts, whereas the woods has an inherently spooky vibe. There were four of us sitting by the fire in the ranger station on that chilly night. Me, Harlan, Anthony, and Craig. Craig had just finished talking about his cousin's wedding when Anthony asked Harlan what his scariest story was from working here all these years. Usually Harlan just chuckled and said he'd heard some crazy things over the years. But not this time. This time he sat there quietly for a moment before he said the Witch of Blackthorn Creek. That was when we all went completely still. If we were just like people huddled around a campfire, Harlan was the one in charge of building the fire. He was the ranger we always deferred to. He'd been on the job long enough to have earned that right. Harlan's family had also been in the area for generations. So if anyone had any stories to tell about what may have happened here, it was him. Plus, he was a terrific guy, hardworking and beyond helpful when you needed something. So when someone like Harlan tells you he's heard of a story like that, you listen intently, especially with the tone of voice he used, serious and no-nonsense without a trace of amusement. The Witch of Blackthorn Creek Harlan began in a clear voice as we all gave him our full attention. The story was first told to me by my Uncle George, who had been a lumberjack for years. According to him, people said there was a curse on the land, which was placed there by a witch. It all started one year when the harvest went bad, since there had been nothing but plentiful harvests every year. It made people beyond suspicious. There was barely enough grain and stuff to get through winter. It didn't help matters that the town had generally been prosperous, but had recently started to go through some financial difficulties. Then numerous bits of misfortune happened within the community over the years. Houses burning down. People going missing and never being found again. Periodically, there would be something odd left lying around near where someone had vanished. Creepy things like weird-looking dolls made from wood that never failed to rattle people. There wasn't anyone around who people thought was capable of anything like this. 
And since one of the families in town had experienced something like this before in a different town many years ago, they suspected there was some kind of curse put on them, especially after a few people who kept track of all the strange events realized all of them took place on a full moon. Harlan took a sip of his coffee before he continued. It all came to a head when there was a terrible accident at the town lumber mill, a fire that no one could figure out how it started. Several employees died and many others were badly injured, and the lumber mill, which was one of the biggest employers around, closed. That was when the paranoia that had been lingering under the surface boiled over. So when some people from town found an abandoned cottage in the woods near Blackthorn Creek with weird symbols written on the walls and the floor, they grabbed their torches, set the place on fire, and watched it burn. According to the crowd, the cabin took forever to burn, much longer than the people thought possible. But once it did finally burn down, they took the ashes and buried them deep in the woods and didn't mark the location, hoping that would be the end of it. And for a while, that seemed to be the case. But every once in a while, something would happen that would make people in town look over their shoulders. Nothing major, a bit of bad luck in the form of an injury, or some suspicious noises outside the house after dark, and perhaps some scratch marks on the door or the wall. But ever since then, people would be very careful what they did, especially if there was a full moon. Then he paused for. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. For a moment to look at the fire, which was crackling pleasantly in the fireplace. I couldn't tell you how old I was when I first heard the story, but I remember exactly how I felt. Confused. Because the story, although creepy and entertaining, didn't quite make sense to me. And I said something to Uncle George about that. And he laughed. Then he said he agreed that the story was long on atmosphere and short on believability. That's when he got serious told me that although the story was a bit of fiction, he never doubted that it came from somewhere and there was indeed something going on out in the woods. Then he added that it didn't matter how old I was, where I was, who I was with, or what was going on. If I got a terrible feeling, I should listen to it, and I've listened to every feeling I've gotten since then. It's never served me wrong. He looked around at us, slowly taking us all in. I've never quite believed that story, but I will be the last person to deny that in all the years I've been out here, I've felt things on occasion. Things that made the hair stand up on the back of my neck, and on even fewer occasions, I've seen things, fleeting glances at things that I wasn't sure I saw. But there was one time when I not only felt something, I heard something. The air in the ranger station was completely still. I briefly glanced at my colleagues as Harlan said this, and they met my glance, and I could see they were just as gripped by the story as I was. It was about thirty years. A go, Harlan explained. 
I was just starting out as a park ranger. This was back in the early 90s when technology and life in general was very different from today. I'd grown up out in nature and I'd seen plenty of scary movies and more importantly, I'd grown up hearing countless spooky stories about what may or may not have been lurking outside so I wasn't exactly sheltered. But there are some things you're never truly prepared to experience. The fire in the fireplace popped in the grate, but we were so absorbed in Harlan's story we barely noticed. There was plenty of wood in the fire, so we didn't have to worry about that for a while. It was early November. Halloween had just ended, which made everyone sad because I remember that year was a particularly fun one. Darkness seemed to be arriving earlier and earlier. So I was barely halfway through my shift when the sun was going down. I remember it had been raining almost every day, so the days were all gray and cloudy, and the nights were damp with plenty of fog. But that particular morning was dry. All the leaves that had clung to the trees had been scattered by the winds and rain, so they lay there on the grass, all damp and torn. My job on that particular day was to go around raking them up so they didn't completely cover the trails and paths that people walked on. The chill in the air was the chill only late fall can bring. The dampness that seems to soak into your skin and never let go. I had just finished one section of the park and was walking back to my truck when the rain started up again. And it did so with a fury. So I hustled it to the truck, got inside, and headed back to the ranger station, where I planned to spend the rest of the evening. And since it was a quiet night at the ranger station, it looked like I would get what I wanted. I was used to working the late shift by myself as the night supervisor, so being alone didn't bother me. I'd always been a quiet type who liked to read a book, so it was an ideal situation for me. Except for that night. Harlan took a deep breath before he continued. Because Halloween was over and the rain had been steady, the park hadn't received as many visitors as it usually had. But I was inside the ranger station, this ranger station in fact, which was just as cozy and warm as you see it now. Plus now that I was done with my task, I was free to read a book. So I wasted no time in curling up by the fire with the paperback. I'd spent many a shift this way, and it was fine by me. I'd happily read a book on a nice day, but on a rainy day, nothing better. Eventually, I started to get hungry. Since I'd just brought a light snack, but turned out to be craving something bigger, I decided to order pizza. There was a local joint that was only a few minutes away that often delivered out here back then, so I didn't hesitate to give them a call. I ordered a medium pizza with pepperoni. And as I hung up, the rain started to really pound heavily on the station roof. I knew from experience that the rain pounding on the station roof could truly be loud. It seemed to surround you from all sides. But by the time the headlights pulled into the driveway, the rain had faded to a slight drizzle. But I could see the grass leading up here was pretty well soaked. And there were numerous small puddles on both the grass and the road. The trees were swaying along with the winds, and the sky was getting darker by the minute as night was settling in. By now, the outdoor lights had started to switch on as the car from the pizza place pulled up in front of the station, its windshield wipers going back and forth as it stopped in front of the entrance. I stood in front of it, under the part of the roof that kept me out of the rain. 
The driver, a young guy named Derek in his early 20s, got out of the driver's seat and grabbed the pizza from the passenger side. Derek had delivered here before, and he'd always done a great job. We chit-chatted as I handed him the cash with a generous tip. Then Derek handed me the pizza and was just about to go back to his car before he stopped and stared at something behind me. He paused and said that it would probably sound crazy, but it looked like there was a woman lurking in the woods near the ranger station. We all sat there silently for a moment before Harlan continued. I remember just standing there when he told me. The words sounded almost foreign as Derek said them out loud. My first reaction was that it was impossible, but there was only one way to find out, so I turned behind me to look at where he was pointing. He took another sip of coffee. The cluster of trees he was pointing at was a dense area of tall pine trees. They'd been long gone by now, but back then there wasn't much in the way of illumination out there, but he and I could see there was nothing there. I stood there, the pizza still clutched in my hand. As I waited for anything to happen, but nothing emerged from the woods. I was just about to turn back to Derek when I heard, Get out! from beside me in a hushed voice. Clear as could be, I turned around immediately to look at Derek, and without saying a word, I knew he'd heard it too. But while it was creepy as could be, I didn't know for sure what it meant. It didn't come out as an ominous command. More like a warning, but I won't lie, standing there outside, I'd never felt fear like that before. I'd been afraid before, and I'd been afraid after, but not like that. That fear was less like a feeling and more like a part of your body. Like it's always there, and only rarely are you truly aware of it. Sitting there watching Harlan, it was clear that although we were sitting there in the present, he had been immediately transported back to that cold November night. I couldn't have told you how much time passed. May have only been a minute or two. But despite the dwindling light, I thought I could see shapes moving far out in the woods. Very far out. After a moment, you couldn't see anything at all. Then Harlan's voice became quieter. To this day, I have no idea why that sight filled me with so much fear. Just like I also have no idea how I knew it was people. But I did. And I knew it was people, as in more than one. Much more than one but I had no idea exactly how many. Then, almost as if on cue, I heard the word now, and it was all the motivation I needed to tell Derek we had to go. He didn't need to be told twice, because we hopped in his car and got out of there as fast as we could. Didn't stop for about 20 miles, and we were far away from the ranger station. By that point, the fear had slowly faded, and I was starving, so we split the pizza while debating what to tell my superiors. I eventually decided to say that I was feeling really sick and went to see a doctor I knew. Harlan chuckled. But it didn't take long for me to realize my excuse for leaving would be completely forgotten. Because after I left, the ranger station had been broken into by a group of people. The security camera we had at the time saw all six of them, dressed from head to toe in black, break right through the front door. Just crashed right through it. Then minutes later, they came back out without taking anything and vanished into the trees. The cops thoroughly searched the area but found nothing. I found out when I called my superiors to tell them I had to leave because I was feeling horrible. From the time on the camera, they appeared to arrive within mere minutes after I left with Derek. 
We all exchanged a look as the fact that he really was talking about this ranger station dawned on us. Sitting across from us, Harlan didn't say anything, but I knew he could tell the three of us were seeing the ranger station like never before. The conclusion the cops reached, Harlan eventually said, is that it was a gang of professional criminals who saw the ranger station and decided to see what they could find. Since there was apparently nothing they could make use of, they split. And every year on that day since that happened, I've taken a single flower and left it by where Derek says he saw someone that night. I've never seen or heard that voice since that night, but on occasion I've felt the presence of something or someone watching me and not in an unpleasant way. But that's the thing about the woods. There's no telling what you may find in them, and if you're really paying attention, it's amazing what you can learn. Like I learned that November night, all those years ago, was a full moon. The clouds just happened to obscure it out here. I used to work in a shitty little mall in the suburbs of a city known for crackheads and shootings, a.k.a. most cities. I was about 16 at the time, and when we closed the store, we had to leave through a back alley as the mail mall had long since been locked up. We always left in pairs, but a few particular nights I wasn't able to catch a buddy. Mind you, I would always park under the streetlights so I could be seen on cameras and always called my mom as I was walking to my car. A little life tip I stole from the movie taken in case anything were to happen. On several occasions, creepy shit would go down. Had someone wrap a shirt on my windshield wiper in attempt to get me back out of my car? Nope. Had a stalker type who'd come in and follow me or the other girls around the store. Their whole shift and even buy them coffees. Wait for me outside the alley exit. Had some dudes walking through the parking lot start walking toward me and my car, so I booked it and sped the heck out of there. Had someone literally slash two of my tires from the inside. I was 16 years old. I think had I not been raised to be hyper-aware, I would have easily been a victim to any of these targets. It was a crisp autumn evening in Lodi, a small town nestled away in the heart of Ohio. I had just returned from work, exhausted but content, and my teenage daughter, Liz, was engrossed in her homework at the kitchen table. The house was filled with the soft hum of our daily routine, when suddenly a high-pitched scream pierced through the tranquility of our home. Both Liz and I looked at each other, wide-eyed, as the eerie sound resonated through the stillness. It was a noise unlike anything we had ever heard before, a peculiar mix of a woman's scream and the haunting call of a peacock. We exchanged puzzled glances before rushing to the window. In mere seconds, we heard it again. This time, the sound was accompanied by a thunderous commotion, like the scraping of heavy metal. Our hearts raced as we tried to locate the source of the disturbance. It sounded as if something immense was moving with incredible force. I hurried to the backyard, Liz close behind, and our jaws dropped in disbelief. There, on the side of our house, was an air conditioner unit. But it wasn't just sitting there. It was being pushed. No, practically shoved by some unseen force. The sheer power on display was terrifying. 
As we watched, our shock deepened. Suddenly, a massive shape jumped onto the unit. It was a creature of the most unusual and terrifying appearance. It had long, shaggy hair that trailed behind it like a tail, and its legs, though short in comparison to its body, were long enough to stretch to an astonishing seven feet. The beast weighed what seemed like an impossible four hundred pounds. It was like a nightmarish amalgamation of a polar bear, a gorilla, a wolf, and a man, all rolled into one surreal entity. Our voices caught in our throats as we stared at this monstrous creature, its form swaying back and forth atop the air conditioner. It seemed to be taunting us with its presence, with its utter otherworldliness. Then, in an instant, it leaped off the unit, disappearing into the darkness. Seconds later, we heard a sound in the distance, as if the creature had put a mile between itself and us. The strange scream, now a faint echo, sent shivers down our spines. Our minds raced as we struggled to make sense of what we had just witnessed. It was too bizarre, too nightmarish to be real, but the sight and sound of it were undeniable. Terrified and bewildered, we knew we had to report this to the Lodi police. We weren't alone in our encounter with the inexplicable beast. As we would soon find out, others in town had witnessed similar sightings. In fact, reports of this mysterious creature dated back more than 15 years. The police listened to our account with a mixture of concern and skepticism. They assured us they would look into the matter, but warned us not to jump to conclusions. Nevertheless, we couldn't shake the eerie feeling that had settled over Lodi. Years passed, and it seemed that the beast had vanished into the annals of the unknown. Life in our quiet town returned to normal, but the memory of that fateful night continued to haunt us. Then in 2008, a chilling deja vu descended upon us. Liz had a boyfriend by then, and we were driving back from Mansfield along Route 42 when it happened again. The creature, the same enigmatic entity we had seen years before, appeared on the roadside. Liz, her boyfriend, and I watched in stunned silence as it crossed our path. This time we knew there was no denying it. The beast of Lodi was real, and its presence remained as inexplicable and unsettling as ever. To this day, the enigma endures. The creature, whatever it may be, continues to elude explanation, leaving the residents of Lodi to wonder about the mysteries that lie hidden in the shadows of their quiet town. After researching what I'd seen on Google, I came across your YouTube channel associated with the words dogs and man, along with Werewolf Ohio, several times. I'm a sales representative for the Ohio, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania region, with an office in Canton, Ohio. Being a city boy, it is often intriguing and interesting to be out in the country. With my job, I often find myself in new places and always see things I never thought I would. That was until Tuesday, November 23rd. On that day, I found myself following my GPS down a dirt road in Lisbon, Ohio, while listening to the local radio station out of Akron, ranting about the election. Suddenly, I spotted a man in a black fur coat running across a field. 
At first, he was about ten feet away, and then, in what seemed like a flash, he was halfway across it before I had time to realize that this was not normal. I slammed on the brakes and grabbed my phone to take a photo, but I didn't have enough time to capture a good shot. The attached picture is what I managed to get. This creature was at least seven feet tall and incredibly fast. It was entirely black, and I noticed what I later thought must have been a row of long, pearly white teeth as it ran. I distinctly remember two ears high on its head. It was definitely walking on two legs, but appeared to be a giant dogman of sorts. Around three years ago, I was pretty down in the dumps. My long-term girlfriend just left me. I was back to living in my parents' basement, and to top it all off, apparently the world was supposed to end in a few months, according to some old calendar. I bought into it, yeah. I was, and still am. Big on prepping for global disaster. Who knows what sort of shit could happen. I'd rather be safe than sorry. Anyway, I had been doing some pretty heavy research into Bigfoot sightings. Gigantopithecus. Dude in an ape suit, some other undiscovered primate, nobody knows. But I know it's out there somewhere. I looked through page after page trying to gather as much information as I possibly could. I was determined. It didn't take me long to decide I was going to head out into the wilderness on my own and search for this elusive thing. I figured we all only had a few months to live anyway, what did I have to lose? I saved up some cash and went out to a sporting goods store to pick up some gear, a good tent and sleeping bag, as well as some other assorted camping supplies. I even nabbed some night vision goggles off of eBay. I was prepared. I was ready. I got a plane ticket to Washington State. I'd read that's where a lot of the sightings were and flew out there within the week. The plane ride was uneventful except for one very strange occurrence. After polishing off quite a few rum and cokes, if did the world's ending soon, right? I realized I had to piss like a racehorse. As I stumbled my way down the aisle, I suddenly felt every single passenger's eyes on me, even the ones who had sleeping. I mean, every single one, children included. I think I saw a friggin' baby giving me the evil eye. It was dead silent, even though moments before the plane sounded like Mardi Gras. I kept looking back at the passengers when my hands found the bathroom door. They all had their heads turned around, still pointing their dark gazes at me. I slowly turned my head around to find an old woman inches from my face. Her eyes were all white. Blood trickled from her nose. She grabbed me by face and pulled me closer still. Her rancid breath whispered something to me. Find us. We're waiting, the hag whispered. I practically threw myself into the bathroom and slammed the door closed behind me. What the hell was going on? Did I fall asleep on the plane and am now dreaming? Did somebody spike my drink and I'm now tripping out? Were the conspiracy nuts right and the world is ending? It took me about five minutes to calm myself down. I wasn't a huge fan of flying to begin with, let alone flying straight into a Twilight Zone episode. I decided to peek my head out of the bathroom to see if all the monies was still there. She wasn't. It actually looked normal again. I stepped out of the bathroom and walked back to my seat. 
Nobody was staring at me anymore. Had I imagined all that? I wish I could say that I had, in fact, imagined it all. But unfortunately, as I sat down, I noticed there was a small piece of paper in my seat. It was a business card. It was all white, plain, with nothing but an address on it. 237 Highway, 12 Packwood, Washington. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. At this time, we'd like to ask you all to please return to your seats and buckle up as we'll be preparing to make our touchdown in beautiful Emerald City of Citadel. The plane taxied to a halt, and I got off, eager to get the F out of there. I opened the map app on my phone and typed in the address from the business card. The app couldn't find the address. Typical of that buggy piece of shit, but it did show me where Packwood was. I knew I'd heard of it before. It was a little town deep in the wilderness between Mount Rainier and Mount St. Helen's prime territory for Bigfoot sightings. I'd planned on going through there anyway on my way south so I could stop off for supplies before heading into the forest. I turned the card over in my hands and I shrugged. I figured the hell with it. I'm out here for adventure, aren't I? Might as well check the place out. I got my bag haggled with a rent, a car clerk for a bit, and started the two-hour drive south. I listened to the radio, the station selection slowly dying out the further I got from Seattle. For the last 20 minutes, the only thing coming in was a single station playing old-timey music on an endless loop. The same strange tune over and over, fuzzed with little bursts of static now and again. By the time I reached Packwood, it was starting to get to me. I thought I could hear someone whispering in the static. It was the middle of the night when I reached the town. I drove down Highway 12, noting the address signs as I went, looking for the address on the card. All the numbers were in the 13,000s. Whoever wrote down 230, seven must have made a mistake. I pulled into the Packwood Inn and went into the office. No one was there. Just a few keys laid out on the counter and a handwritten note that said pay up in the morning. I grabbed one and opened up a room. I was exhausted from the long trip and I plopped down on the bed. I messed around on my phone for a bit, thought about texting my ex-girlfriend. You said I should have more ambition. Well, how about Mother F. Bigfoot hunting? I typed before deleting it and I fell asleep. I woke up a couple hours later. It was still dark out. I have trouble sleeping in unfamiliar places, so I decided to just get an early start on the day. I went into the bathroom pulled my shirt off to take a shower. I froze. I stared into the bathroom mirror, unable to process what I was seeing. The number 237 had been written on my chest in crimson red paint. I freaked instantly, jumping in the shower and soaking my bottoms in the process. The red numbers melted slowly into formless pink and red shapes. I fought down the panic as the shower warmed from its biting cold, and I scrubbed the last remnants of the numbers off of my chest. Someone had been in my room and somehow painted numbers on my chest, all without waking me up. I had no idea what this meant, but I knew it wasn't safe to hang around my room any longer. I hadn't unpacked much at all, and I grabbed everything that I'd brought with me and hurried down the empty hallways. I passed the desk again, still empty, but the sign had been pulled down off of it, the only sign of another human I'd seen. 
As I saw the lobby doors, my hurried walk turned into a jog, and I stepped into the surprisingly crisp night air. I turned the rental car onto the same old-timey music. Of that noise, I growled to no one but myself, turning the radio off with comforting decisiveness. Despite the lack of people, or maybe because of it, I felt watched. There was a full moon out, and the clock in my car told me that I should be getting the benefits of dawn soon. So I kept the headlights off until I eased out of the parking lot and was back on the main town road, back on Highway 12. I had drove north. Although the technical area of Packwood was large, most of the buildings were clustered in the center near the inn and tourism centers. And as I drove with a slowly growing sense of tension, I passed a church, and then the only sign that I was still in Packwood were paths that cut into the trees and disappeared side roads that lead to nestled houses in the forest. I should have just kept going, left the entire town behind. I didn't. Something red flashed in the dim edges of my headlights, and I stopped, mind whirling towards the numbers that had been painted on my chest. I suppose one thing all Bigfoot hunters have in common is undying curiosity in placing personal comfort and safety below the thrill of the chase. I gathered all of my survival gear that I had thrown in the back seat and put it on, just in case. I shone the flashlight around, looking for what I had seen. The trees were marked, marked with crimson paint. Unlike what had been on my chest, this paint was faded, worn away on the bark save for the well-preserved. You could still make out the shapes of the markings through the paint that was preserved in the cracks with a little effort. I knew from both my research on Bigfoot sightings and the brief search on Packwood I'd done after receiving the address that the town had, for most of its history, been a lumber town. The industry had collapsed in the late 1990s, and the town's big lumber mill had closed down suddenly. These trees had been marked for harvesting, but had never made it. Most were marked with simple X, but my flashlight fell on red lettering. 134 not the number I'd been given, but there were other trees. Not very many were marked with numbers. There were several 134s, but I saw a 222 and swallowed. My heart was racing now, and I jumped as the handheld radio in my pack suddenly crackled to life. The music nothing but broken words fighting to cut through static now. Find us. The words echoed, and I felt compelled. I broke into the trees, abandoning the highway as I panned my flashlight tree to tree, searching and working deeper into the swatch of trees that had been marked. In my head, I went over everything I knew about Packwood. Unfortunately, my knowledge of its actual history mostly ended at the lumber mill, and most of what I knew revolved around Bigfoot sightings. Packwood wasn't exactly a mainstream destination for Bigfoot sightings. It had only really started getting any amount of significant sightings around ten years ago, and even then, nothing conclusive. Really, you would only know to look for Bigfoot at Packwood if you were the kind of obsessive hunter that had already exhausted the mainstream spots, the kind that went into further. In further remote regions, trusting success to slimmer and slimmer chances, the more underground, the better. I personally had even considered Packwood nothing serious, not until the hag on the plane. The kind of hunters who no one was surprised went missing, 
the thought crossing my mind the same moment my life crossed a hulking pitch black pine. 237 scrawled across its trunk in fresh crimson letters. The radio was hissing static like whispers, and the phrase, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting, droned through my mind. Once my light had found the one tree, I saw another. There was a whole scattering of black pines, trunks twice as thick as the ones around them, a dense, sleek black only marred by the bright red numbers on each of their trunks. Find us. We're waiting. And then silence. The radio stopped. The whispers ended. It was nothing but me and the sound of the night, the all-encompassing quiet that steals all that you are into its own blackness until it was disturbed. I hardly noticed it at first. It grew slowly into my consciousness, a sound that I was familiar with but somehow didn't know, a droning, wispy sound, but not one I should have been hearing there. There was something behind the pine. From where I was standing, it was hard to make out. Its shape was near the tree, but it was bigger, longer, man-made. I moved toward it, and suddenly the sound made sense to me. There, crashed and dilapidated into the middle of the trees, was an airplane, and suddenly the sound made sense to me. I was hearing an engine. It was torn and broken, but it somehow still seemed to be ready for flight. Its doors gleamed out like an invitation, and one that I wasn't going to dismiss. Curiosity, as it always does, got the best of me. I wrenched the door ajar, orange rust preventing it from moving any smoother. It was impossible to get in with all of my gear, so I left it by the door to retrieve it just in case. The moment I entered, I knew something was wrong. I couldn't see or hear. Anything but every other sense just felt wrong. The ground was wrong. The smell was wrong. Even the very air of it was wrong. I reached back through the door to grab my flashlight. I shone it around me, my immediate area at first, and then at the preceding aisles before me, and it was wrong. I was not alone on the airplane. Every single seat was full with crumbling skin and slack-jawed bones, buckled in as if it were just now making the descent. The strange thing was they were all in different levels of decay. The remains of a dressed-up woman cradled a swaddle of death in her arms, while a fairly intact man with glasses studied an in-flight magazine, and near the back an old woman with a toothy, blood-stained grin stared at me. They all stared at me, every single one. They all watched me with dark gazes from eyes they didn't have, judged me with sneers of faceless expression. Every face, every eye. Every seat, every seat save one. It was empty on the aisle and strangely familiar. I walked to it slowly, the empty eyes of every passenger watching me pass. It was labeled 37, but beside it someone had painted a crimson 2, 237. And then I knew, I knew why it all felt so familiar. Why the plane was like a distant memory in the seat deja vu. This was my seat. On the plane, this was my seat, and this was my seat now. I sat down, and it was right, just right. I buckled myself in, because safety first. My tray table was secure, but I was sure that any minute now the pilot would announce refreshments, and I would get a rum and coke, and maybe take a nap. 
and their eyes weren't on me anymore because we were ready, up and away. They were waiting, and I had found them, and then, seventeen hours later, she found me. Her name was Deanna. She was a hunter, just like me. She pulled me from the plane and from the brink of insanity. She'd been out camping and found the numbers, followed them just as I had. When she heard the droning of the plane engine, curiosity got the better of her. That's when she found me still in the seat, still mindlessly staring into blissful nothingness. She brought me to her camp and then back into town. She left me at the bus station and I never saw her again.